Yeah, my name's actually Josh Camacho. <laughs> That's all right. You know what? That uh, that happens. You know, I at West Hills we have two campuses, and so I serve at one campus, a smaller one, but then I regularly go preach at the larger one. And people, you know, when you stand up front, everyone knows your face and knows your name, and they just walk right up to me and say, "Hey, Josh, how you doing?" And I'm like, "Hey, man," you know. <laughs> so no no worries at all. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 73. I'll tell you, I felt this morning as we were um, asking the Lord for spiritual gifts and he was giving people words, I almost felt like a miracle occurred. Um, The things that people were sharing, the stuff that we were singing about this morning was, I mean, it's almost exactly what I'm preaching on today. Almost identical to what I'm preaching on today. And it just occurred to me, man, there is one Holy Spirit. <laughs> there is one Holy Spirit, there's one church, there's one God at work in our church and in your church and in my life and in your lives. And man, praise the Lord. I heard a story uh, not too long ago about Mark Twain. I'm not sure if you know who Mark Twain is, but he's the author of a couple of pretty popular books, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. He had a a reputation for being a notorious cusser. He would swear all the time. He had a a very gentle and pious wife, and she hated this about Mark. And so one day he was shaving in the bathroom, and she wanted to teach him a lesson. So she walked into the bathroom and and said a a few of these words that she despised so much. And um, as the story goes, Mark sort of looks at her and he goes, My dear, you know the words, but you do not know the tune. And uh, what's what's interesting about that is, you know, I've, I've heard my godly wife swear maybe one time and it was the most unnatural thing that had ever happened in our house it was just like you should you don't know how this is supposed to come out of a person like come on um but it is remarkable though that we can know words we can say words and we cannot really under we don't really understand what's behind them um the strength from which you know they they proceed and we're going to be looking at psalm 73 today and this is a guy who's going to begin the psalm saying truly god is good He knows the words, but he is very clearly struggling to understand the tune. The problem is that this psalmist is trying to process his life, his circumstances, which seem in conflict with God's goodness. Something has happened that's causing him to ask, how could a good God allow something like this to happen? And I just have one point I want to make. I'm going to try and cover almost this entire psalm. I'll I'll speed through some parts. I'll really slow down in others. But I have one point I want to make, and that's this. God and his goodness is at work in our circumstances to the end that we would learn to find satisfaction only in him. God and his goodness is at work in our circumstances to the end that we would learn to find ultimate satisfaction in him. And instead of just reading the whole psalm, I'm just going to kind of read it as we go. But in today's text, we're going to look at how God works this idea out in the heart and mind of a normal person on a normal day. We're going to look how God brings someone to a place where they are struggling with their circumstances, struggling to accept the goodness of God in the midst of their circumstances, to finding their satisfaction in Him. We're going to look first at the honest struggle 
We're going to look at the honest struggle to believe that God is good in light of difficult circumstances. Second, we're going to see how God moves the psalmist from the place of struggling to a place of seeing the situation with divine clarity. But thanks be to God, this psalm doesn't stop there. It takes us all the way to the point where this man's heart begins to savor God's goodness in the midst of his circumstances. And there's lessons for us here. So first we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into verses 1 through 14. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that you guide us and you lead us by your word, that you interact with us and you change us by your power through your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would um, help everyone's minds and hearts to be open Um, And that you would come and speak powerfully to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So this psalm begins in verse 1 with a clear statement of truth. He says, truly God is good. And these four words, I'm sure you know, serve as the underlying premise of the entire biblical storyline. That God is good. God makes good things, like good people. God puts the good people in a good place and gives them good work to do. And even when those people rebel against him, he remains good and shows mercy, shows mercy and judgment and kindness in response to the sin, and that's pretty much going to govern the rest of the story all the way until the consummation of the kingdom at the end of the age. And this passage isn't trying to say that God does good things sometimes. It's saying that he, by nature, has a fundamental predisposition to promote the happiness of unworthy creatures. That's the doctrine of the goodness of God. God is not only just, he is good. He's not only holy, he's compassionate. The goodness of God, by the way, is one of my favorite doctrines in the Bible. Um, I would encourage you to study that aspect of his character if you've never done so. Yet even though God is good to all creatures in general, we see that God is especially gracious, especially good, especially kind towards his covenant people. It says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So, every living creature that woke up this morning took a breath of air by the power of God. And they inhaled air that came into their lungs as a gift from God because God is good. God is showing goodness to all of us. But God has a special affection. He has committed to a special relationship of care and concern for his covenant people, especially those who are pure in heart. The pure in heart in this passage are those who strive to live a humble life of honest obedience. The pure in heart are those who strive to live a humble life of honest obedience. And God is especially committed, especially committed to promoting the happiness of those people. And, I mean, a question naturally falls, is it okay for God to do that? Can he have a special affection for a special people? Of course it is. We all do that. I have a home group back in my church And I love those people. I've been with those people for a long time, some of them. But my love for them is different. It doesn't actually compare at all to the covenant love I have for my wife. (laughs) 
It's just a different kind of love. It's a different kind of relationship because of our covenant bond. And this, what I've just said, is the theological truth the psalmist knows. This is what he believes. This is what he is confessing to be true with his mouth. Truly God is good, especially to the pure in heart. But then comes this unexpected twist. The psalmist says, but as for me, uh uh-oh, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I know what the truth is. But something has happened that's causing it to be very difficult for me to walk in the pathway of the truth right now, to accept the truth as it is. But not only that, the way I'm processing my circumstances is threatening to send me tumbling down a cliff. It's threatening to send me to the destruction of my soul. You ever had a moment like this, man's? Staring into difficult circumstances, feeling like there's only darkness, and losing your grip on the reality of the goodness of God, the truth that you know with your mind and confess with your mouth. That's a scary place to be. And I promise you that this text is going to give us some powerful anchors for the soul this morning. So if you are there, if you're afraid of being there, if you're afraid that you might one day get there at some point in the future, God has things he wants to say to us through this psalm. So what's the source of this man's stumbling? Look back at verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And you have to just love how honest that is. <laughs> how honest of a confession that is. This psalmist isn't going through chemotherapy. The psalmist didn't lose a son in war. This is a normal guy on a normal day meditating on the fact that other people have what he wants. He doesn't have it. He's focusing on what he doesn't have. Someone shared that in the back. says, I was envious of the arrogant. The psalmist saw the prosperity of the wicked, and instead of feeling a deep burden for God's justice to be displayed, he felt envy. Envy. He thought to himself, but I want those things. Why do the bad guys get to play with all the toys and not me? He was envious. And I want to observe just in passing and very quickly that verse 3 leads to verse 2. Envy can lead to the destruction of your soul. Don't fool around with envy. Don't make excuses for envy. Don't try to justify envy. When you see envy in yourself, you need to fight it with all your might. Fight it to the bitter end. It leads to the destruction of souls. But as we read on, we see that the psalmist has a hundred reasons to justify this envy. He says in verse 4, They don't have any pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. The the wicked are healthy, wealthy, and wise. They have happy families and clear consciences. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. It's not that they just, it's not just that they have all the nice stuff and I don't have it. 
they seem blessed in their wickedness. They're so gluttonous that their eyes are bulging from their heads. I love that picture. Isn't that amazing? Lord, look, he says. They speak boastfully against heaven. They walk around in the world running their mouths as if they're greater than even you. Verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Makes me nervous to read those words out loud. He says, Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. They not only have everything, they not only aren't being judged for all of their wickedness, it seems like they're being blessed because of their wickedness, almost. seems like their life is all pleasure and no pain, despite the fact that they mock you to your face, Lord. But here's the saddest part of the whole psalm. You ready? Verse 13. All in vain... Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. The psalmist says, It feels like I'm trying to be pure in heart for nothing. I'm trying to be pure in heart for nothing. I strive to humbly walk in obedience and I get mocked for being godly, he says. I'm trying to live for your glory and all I get in return it seems like is suffering. The wicked just live for themselves. They mock you to their face and nothing seems to ever go wrong with them. My feet are slipping here, Lord. I feel on the verge of a great stumble. Father, how can you be good? How can you be good when the evil are blessed and the righteous suffer? I know with my mind that truly God is good to the pure in heart. So why does it feel right now like that is simply not the case? It's the honest struggle of a normal guy on a normal day. Isn't that incredible? So just to recap, we've seen two things so far that have caused the psalmist to doubt God's goodness. First, the wicked seem blessed in their wickedness. And second, his pursuit of godliness seems to have gained him Nothing. At least that's his perspective today. Because these two things seem to be true experientially, it seems as though God is not good. And that's a real issue that needs a real answer. This is the psalmist's honest struggle to believe God is good. But it's at this point in the psalm that the man's heart begins to turn. Let's observe what happens here. What happens to bring this man from struggling with God's goodness to seeing his circumstances with divine clarity. Verse 15, he said, If I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, I'm going to speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph, who is the author of this psalm, he is a Levite. And he's not just a Levite, he is a Levite who had been commissioned by the king to write songs of worship for the people of God. That was his vocation in life. 
And now, in the middle of processing this difficult question, it suddenly occurs to Asaph to think about someone other than himself. He says, if I were to give these feelings freedom in my heart and mind, I would betray the generation of your children. I'd be turning my back on the pure in heart in Israel. And this is where deliverance begins for this man. The word for betray in Hebrew has a very negative connotation to it. It's like he's saying, I would deceive this generation. I would harm this generation. I would speak deceitfully, fraudulently. I would deal with God's children in this way. And now there's two very important things to see here. Asaph's deliverance begins the moment he stops thinking only of himself. The simple fact of the matter is that Asaph, like most of us, tend to question God like this with mixed motives, don't we? And by mixed motives, I mean that there's usually some righteousness in the question. Why do the wicked prosper? But then there's some sin in the question. I was envious when I saw their prosperity. And this self-interest becomes especially clear in verse 13 when he says, In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. If I would have known how little God was going to give me for all my hard work, I would have blah, 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 me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. Right? That's all that is. And I'm not calling attention to this to make fun of Asaph, obviously. I just want to simply observe that outside of Jesus Christ, our holy Savior, there is no such thing as a purely righteous sufferer. There's no such thing. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That means me and you and the person sitting next to you. And what that implies is that it's going to be an uphill battle for us to be pure in heart. We have good cause to be suspicious of ourselves and no person's ever going to think rightly about themselves or about the world until they're willing to lay aside their own interests for the interests of others. To love our neighbors as ourselves. The change of thinking that leads to freedom is not purely mental, guys. It's moral. It's a moral shift. It's turning from self-interest and self-pity to remember duty, to remembering responsibility, to remembering love. Asaph's deliverance begins the moment he stops thinking only of himself. And second thing to see here, when as soon as Asaph steps back from his own self-absorption, he realizes that he's been fixating on a very small little portion of the picture. He's been burning with envy over the health and wealth of the wicked, but when he stops and looks up, he remembers the family of God. The generation of God's children of which he was a part. And in that moment, I think, it suddenly occurs to him the great value of these relationships. And this is what causes this man to question his own thinking. If I let myself go down this road, I'm going to sin against all these people that I love, against all these people that you love, against all these people who love me. And here's the lesson. By fixating on what you don't have, you tend to completely lose sight of all the wonderful things you do have. The forgotten factor in Asaph's thinking was that a life of pursuing purity in heart is done in relationship with other people. We do this with the family of God. And those relationships are wealth of quite another kind, isn't it? What do these things tell us together? 
It tells us that Asaph's deliverance begins with repentance. It begins with the decision to stop thinking only about himself and what he doesn't have, to turn away from his envious thoughts, and the first thing that happens is he's greeted by the riches that he does have and the family of God in the Lord. So the first step in moving from the place of struggling to believe that God is good to seeing with clarity through divine eyes is to acknowledge our sin and to turn from it. To acknowledge our sin and to turn from it. But I would suggest that that's not quite enough. The question isn't really answered because now you can say, I'm not going to envy the wicked anymore. The question remains, at least in my mind, is our God equally good to the wicked and to the righteous? Is he more good or less good to one or the other? Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. The answer to that question is no. God is not going to deal with the wicked and the righteous in the same way. Indeed, he is not presently dealing with the wicked and the righteous in the same way. After coming to a place of repentance for self-pity, the psalmist continues trying to process this difficult situation until he comes to the place where he just wants to give up because he doesn't understand. He calls it a wearisome task. But then the second step he takes, the second step from repentance to clarity is he stops looking for an answer and he starts looking for the Lord. He stops seeking an answer and he starts seeking God. In verse 17, he enters into the worship, into worship at the sanctuary, and a great veil and a great distance would have stood between Asaph and the Most High God and the mercy seat upon which his presence rested. But just being there, just being near to him, caused clarity to begin washing over his mind and in his soul. By the way, we come to a real knowledge of truth, capital T truth, not through scientific inquiry, but through worship. We come to capital T truth through repentance and worship of the Holy One. Asaph doesn't find his answer by seeking the answer. Asaph finds his answer by seeking the Lord. And that causes a couple things to happen. What happens when you do that? Well, in beholding the glory of the Lord, Asaph begins to realize something both about the wicked and about himself. First, he realizes that God and his goodness is fundamentally opposed to wickedness. Verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You know, at the beginning of the psalm, Asaph was suggesting that he had ventured towards slippery places, but he hadn't quite gone over. Something had pulled him back. His feet had nearly slipped, but it had not actually done so. Here we're told that God puts the wicked in slippery places. Those people who are boasting today will be tumbling tomorrow. Those who are laughing and mocking the pure in heart today will be swept away by terrors tomorrow. Asaph is caused to step back and consider even more of the picture. We don't live for God because we get passing trinkets like silver and gold. 
We don't live for God because we get homes and cars that are beautiful today and are rusting in a lot somewhere in a few decades. We don't live for God today because we get the fleeting approval, the meaningless applause of our fellow men. We strive to be pure in heart because God is going to judge the living and the dead. Every man will be judged for his deeds in the flesh, whether good or evil. That's what all of Scripture says. There will be moral accountability. There will be moral accountability for every man, woman, and child in this room. Every man, woman, and child on this earth. But here's the reality of that. That's meant to be terrifying for the wicked. That's meant to be a source of comfort and encouragement for the righteous. Bullies are going to get what they deserve. People who do terrible things to other people are not going to get away with it. That's supposed to comfort us in the Lord. The lesson is crime does not pay. In verse 20, we're told that the wicked are going to wait. They're just living in a dream world. And at some point, they're going to wake up and be confronted with a good God who is steadfastly opposed to wickedness. But then he begins to also realize something about himself. As Asaph is coming to grips with the goodness of God, he begins to reflect on his own thinking, the way he's been thinking in verses 4 through 14. He says, verse 21, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. That's some strong language. Asaph's first step in repentance was to realize that his thinking had been entirely selfish. And if given free reign, it would have resulted in the betrayal of the family of God. But now that he's here worshiping in the presence of the Lord, Asaph begins to see that this sin was not just a betrayal of the covenant family, this was an affront to the covenant God. And listen, Asaph uses very strong words here for a reason. He calls himself ignorant, brutish like an animal. And what he's doing is he is rendering judgment on himself, on his sin, without mercy and without pity. He is rendering judgment on his sin without making excuses. And that's what real repentance is. That's what real Christian repentance is anyway. There are few things, I think, more heinous than a Christian standing before the cross of our holy Lord, seeing his suffering, seeing his dying, and making excuses for why he's up there. We don't make excuses for our sins. We repent from our sins in this life. Our sin is sin. There's no excuse for sin. We should be condemned for sin. But brothers and sisters, it is in acknowledging this that we understand the sweetness and the goodness of grace. That's where it's found. Mercy that we don't deserve. In verse 22, Asaph says, I was like a beast. What he means is that my reasoning in verse 4 through 14 was like an animal. I was just responding to stimuli. I was just responding to circumstances without any faith, without any reflection on my God. God has given human beings the unique capacity to reflect on our situation instead of just reacting like animals. 
And he gave us that capacity so that we would live by faith and not just by sight. That's what he calls us to. We are supposed to remain anchored in the reality of the invisible God and to react to our circumstances in light of his goodness, glory, and grace. So a few glorious steps have been taken up to this point. God has brought Asaph from a place of struggling to a place of seeing with divine clarity. He's repented. He's turned from his self-absorption to considering the good of others. And in doing so, he has immediately realized that he's been fixating on one small part of the picture. The next thing that he does is he stops looking for the answer to why. He says, I'm not going to seek the answer to my question. I'm just going to seek the Lord and be content with what I find there. And that leads to profound clarity about the fate of the wicked and about the sinfulness of his own sin. God wounded Asaph, but he wounded him to make him healthier. Now that Asaph is no longer thinking of himself, now that he's no longer focusing on finding an answer for why things aren't going differently for him, he is ready to move from just seeing with clarity to now savoring God's goodness in worship. Let's look at this. Man, I prayed for you all this week that none of us would leave without being able to say this with the psalmist. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. There really shouldn't be space between verse 22 and 23. These confessions are meant to stand together. I was like a beast, but for some reason I am still continually with you. Notice how he phrases it. I'm continually with you, not you're continually with me. Though that's also true, and we'll look at that in a second. But let's pay attention to what he's trying to say here. Asaph in verse 2 of this psalm had wandered away. He had almost taken that terrible tumble down the hill of blasphemy. But things started to happen in his mind and in his soul that brought him back to the living God. It's like he's saying, I shouldn't even be here, but for some reason, (laughs) I'm a brutish, ignorant beast, and once again, I am looking up like a pig from the slop to see my holy God, my loving Father, running to me from the distance. Why has this happened? How did Asaph make it back to God's side with humility and repentance? The answer is verse 23. You hold my right hand. God sustained me. God brought me back. God let me go a little bit of of the way into sin as far as he would ordain for my good, but he refused to let me slip to my own destruction. Remember, the wicked are set in slippery places. The righteous are rescued from slippery places. What Asaph is saying is that even when I was faithless, God was faithful. God remained faithful. When my struggles and my sin become so overwhelming that I think I'm burdened beyond what I can bear, Asaph says, I was sustained by the everlasting arms of the Almighty God. I tried to set my foot on a slippery place, only to find that beneath my feet was the immovable rock of ages. God held him up, brothers and sisters. God is not like a man who starts things but leaves them undone. 
Philippians 1.6 says, He, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithless even He is faithful even when we are faithless. Are you wandering from him right now? Have you given your heart the freedom to linger in slippery places this week? Don't despair in your sin, brothers and sisters. It is the Lord who gives you conviction of sin. It is the Lord who guides you back to his sanctuary. Don't hold yourself back from him. Come and be restored to your loving Father. Believe me, if you've been brutish and ignorant as a beast, it's okay, it's happened before. God is continually with us. Verse 24, the psalmist says, When I was lost in my sin, you guided me with your counsel. It is the Lord who led his thinking. It is the Lord who led him back to repentance. It is the Lord who pricked his conscience when he found himself in sin. Yes, we are continually with God, yet God is continually with us. He promises us, I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13. He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. That is how God has chosen to deal with his covenant people. And when we consider all of the innumerable times that God has led us back from those slippery places when we remember his faithfulness to us despite our ongoing struggle to remain pure in heart, it logically follows that this person who has been with me, who is still with me, who has remained with me, will, verse 24, receive me to glory. Will he who brought you this far in the end let you fall? Never, (laughs) ever will that happen. Look at this. The wicked have rejected the Lord to do whatever they want in this life. They have no struggle with sin. They have no fear of harming the innocent. They have no hesitation about stepping on the heads of others to get a little more ease, a little more wealth. But in the end, they will taste only judgment. As for the righteous, today you struggle. Today you fight. Today Asaph is suffering because he is remaining faithful to God and to his law. But tomorrow God will receive him into glory. Never will he suffer again. We don't stop struggling for holiness today because the reward is freedom from struggling forever. Forever. Eternal life in the fullness of the glory of God Look back at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? I had never really thought much about why the psalmist states that in the negative. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? Instead of, you are the only one I have in heaven. You ever thought about why he says it that way? In the context of the psalm, I think it's significant. And in the context of my own experience and my experience as a pastor with other people, I think it's significant. I've heard this kind of language before. I've heard this kind of language before. He says, whom do I have in heaven but you? 
This is the talk of a backslider restored. This is the talk of a true saint who went around and fooled around with sin only to find that sin is not fun to play with anymore. Before I was a Christian, I could do all kinds of terrible stuff and never feel bad about it. In fact, I did do lots of terrible stuff and never felt bad about it. My mom's sitting right there. You can ask her after service. But you know what? That doesn't happen to me anymore. I can't enjoy sin like I used to. I mean, I can still sin, believe me. My wife's sitting right there. You can ask her afterwards. (laughs) But sin has lost its sweetness to me. And there's a very real extent that it's lost its sweetness because now it's accompanied with guilt. I can't just do things that I know offend my God because I have a guilt in my conscience. But I actually think that's the lower emotion. I think that's the lower response in my mind. I think the bigger part is that I know what it feels like to worship the Lord with a pure heart. I know now what it means when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I know what it's like to worship with a conscience cleansed by the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, my Savior. And there's nothing quite like that in the world, is there, brothers and sisters? I've drawn near to God's gracious throne, knowing that I'm not going to be judged or destroyed by a holy God because Jesus has paid for my sins, and by faith I'm part of his family. I've seen his beauty. I've tasted his grace. I don't just know the words to the song. I know the tune. And every time I find myself wandering back into sin, he brings me back. He breaks, he breaks me. And I say with, a th- with the psalmist, what was I thinking? Who have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. There is something far more precious than wealth in this world, brothers and sisters. There is something more satisfying than what flesh and blood can give us. The psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail. Wealth and approval will come and go, but God, God, God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever, verse 26. There is never going to be a more beautiful song than the song of grace. Why on earth would someone live for riches and reject the Lord? The Lord is better. He is faithful. When has riches, when has wealth, when has ease and comfort ever promised you, I will never leave you or forsake you? Never. That's how many times. When a fallible, mortal human being There has never been a fallible, mortal human being who has ever been able to look me in the eye and promise that he will be my portion or she will be my portion forever. My point is that God is objectively better than everything. (laughs) Not on a sliding scale, like there's good and better. Like he is categorically his own best thing. There is nothing greater. There is nothing that compares If you have the Lord, you have everything. If the Lord is your portion, then nothing can be added to you. He is the treasure of treasures, this psalm says. He is the glory of glories. Now let's just take a quick 
look at what God has done in the soul of this man before we close. God has allowed his servant to venture towards a slippery place in envy, but his mighty arm has kept him from going one step further than what God himself had ordained. Then God guided this man back by his counsels that he would stop focusing on himself, so that he'd stop seeking an answer. He brought him back to worship where he realized the fate of the wicked as well as he received clear insight into the heinousness of his sin. And in doing all of this, he taught the man to sing, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Oh my gosh. God used this man's difficult circumstances. He even used this guy's sin to teach him that God was the strength of his heart, that God was his portion forever. Truly, I say to you, God is good. God is good to the pure in heart. Now, If you're struggling to believe that, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling to believe that God is good this morning, we have more than just the faithfulness of his past works. We have his son on a cross for our sins. God is good. We have Jesus the Lord crucified for us to make us children of God so that by believing in him, And with our whole heart following him, he becomes the strength of our heart, our portion forever. Our Lord didn't just die for our sin, by the way. He was buried on the third day and he rose from the dead and now seated at the right hand of the throne, governing this world in love, governing the world in order to do good to the pure in heart, to those who come to him by faith. Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? How could he who did not spare his own son not graciously give us all these things? It has been the song of the church for centuries. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly, completely, entirely, without apology, rely on Jesus' name. This is your God for you, brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the words of this psalm. Thank you that just as, it, just as you've worked in the heart and the soul of Asaph, you will so work in our own lives. Thank you that you are unchanging, that your goodness is eternal and infinite and everlasting. Thank you that you do not allow the righteous to finally fall, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our circumstances wherever we're at this morning, teaching us the tune to the song. We have no desire but you. Everything else may pass away, the flower may fall, the grass may fade, but you, our Father and God, Jesus, our Savior, the Son, Spirit, our teacher and friend, you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We bless your name. Amen.